you've talked about how there's reasons that people can subconsciously keep an illness. Yes. Yes. You don't create an illness. What you do is you facilitate the gene expression of an illness by how you think. So for example, there are two things that, that need to happen for a person to heal. You can cure somebody and not necessarily heal them. What I found in many, many years of hospital work and private practice and all kinds of things is that you have to look at two things. You have the illness. <clears throat> you don't tell the person you created it or anything because they didn't. But you have to know what is this illness allowing me to get away from that I don't want to do? Secondary gains, extremely important. If you don't work that out, you're not going to get rid of the illness. And the other one that nobody talks about is what is it getting me out to do that I don't feel worthy of doing? Yes. That's another one. Those two, if you don't work those two out, very difficult to, to, to heal. You could be cured, but it comes right back. In today's busy world, how can we find the inspiration, knowledge, and energy to live a healthy and empowered life? If we balance and harmonize our mind, exercise our body, live according to the laws of nature, and connect to spirit, can we find a way to heal, become our authentic self, and live our purpose with love? I am your hostess, Amy Fournier, and welcome back to Awakening Aphrodite. Hey, hey, welcome back to Awakening Aphrodite with Amy Fournier. I am really excited to share the show with you. You know, like seriously, two decades ago, I had the books from my guest today because he's a world-renowned clinical neuropsychologist and he specializes in longevity and aging well. It's one thing to get older. It's another thing to get older and not want to because your body hurts and everything kind of sucks. Well, what about if getting older meant you're going to get better and you're going to feel happier? Guess what? Here's the good news. The way you think and the people that you surround yourself are going to be a big determinant of how you age. And not only how you age, but the quality of your life and your health. My guest today is none other than Dr. Mario Martinez. Dr. Martinez is a clinical neuropsychologist who specializes in how cultural beliefs and our beliefs affect health and longevity. Dr. Martinez states that longevity is learned and the causes of health are inherited. He has studied healthy sedentarians, which are people 100 years old and older, worldwide, and he found that only 20 to 25% of them can be attributed to good genes and genetics. The rest is related to how they live and their cultural beliefs that they share. Dr. Martinez is available for interviews and he does webinars and he's just a wealth of knowledge on all these topics. He has two best-selling books, The Mind-Body Code, How to Change the Beliefs that Limit Your Health, Longevity, and Success, and The Mind-Body Self. I have both of those. They are phenomenal. I've read them many times and I review them all the time because Every time I go back over them, there's just more that I pick up and learn. In addition to longevity, he also explains why our immune system is not just a protector. Instead, it responds to the cultural premises we learn to perceive the world. So Dr. Martinez says that not only is the brain cultural, but our immune system responds to cultural cues. You definitely want to pay attention to this one, let me tell you. So we get into that in this episode and we talk about what the heck is psychoimmunology. 
well, basically, it's how thoughts and emotions affect the endocrine, nervous, and immune system. So the way that we think, it's actually affecting our physical body. I know you've heard me say that many times before, but I don't know why we all have a hard time actually really, really understanding and believing it. Well, Dr. Martinez is sharing with us the science of all his decades of work. He shares with us also the importance of having a life of meaning and purpose and the mindset of the people around you are important ingredients to your health. How language actually instructs the body what to do. How the brain is cultural and the role of culture in our brain-body health connection. How feeling worthy is extremely important as well as having good self-esteem in your health and how you age. Why you should never tell anyone your age. And we talk about the secrets and tips of sanitarians and longevity tips, the myths of aging, the causes of having a healthy aging experience, and epigenetics, what they are, how the environment actually affects your gene expression, the difference between aging and getting older, one that's very, very important to know, the difference between rituals and routines how culture is actually more important than your genes, why you never want to refer to yourself as a survivor of anything and being very conscious of any labels you put on yourself for that matter. And we get into what Dr. Martinez calls the archetypal wounds. So these are the critical three ways that a culture can deeply wound a person and that they're pervasive across all cultures. They are abandonment, shame, and betrayal. And they will directly result in diseases and illnesses in the body and the mind. For example, things like autoimmune diseases are associated with shame and how the body actually will manifest diseases as a result of these emotional wounds. And lastly, you definitely want to hang around to the end of the show because we get into the over-masculinization of women in our culture today and what the heck is going on. And Dr. Martinez shares his thoughts on that. And then he, sh- he shares with us how this gender training that's going on with young children today in school is actually, in his opinion, child abuse because people just don't understand the biological science going on in our bodies. And that gender is different than gender identity. They're two totally different things that a lot of people get mixed up And the children are a byproduct of uh, getting confused and all that. Create a lot of problems. So you definitely want to listen to the end of the show. All right. So I'm really excited to share Dr. Mario Martinez with you. It was a great, great discussion we had. And remember, if you want to support me in the show, the best way to do that is to subscribe, share the show, and leave a review on Apple iTunes. That's what keeps this thing afloat. It really does. So thank you so much. And let's go now join Dr. Martinez. Welcome back to Awakening Aphrodite with Amy Fournier. My guest today is Mario Martinez. Mario, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. All right. So everybody already heard your amazing uh, biography and background, but is there anything that you would like to just say to point us out to really the crux of your work or how you describe yourself? You know, the elevator speech, if you meet someone in the elevator, how do you talk about what you do? Certainly not, not about the weather. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
But mainly that uh, what, I, what I'm doing with science is um, every, everyone pretty much agrees that mind and body communicate with each other. But what I'm bringing is the third component, which is communicating in a cultural context. So culture is extremely important in my work. That summarizes, and you'll see as we go along, how, the, how important the culture is in wellness, relationships, longevity, anything that you can think of that has any meaning. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so before we get into that, tell us a little bit about your personal story, Mario. Like, what, tell us just a little snip. like right now you're in the United States in Tennessee, correct? Um, but, you know, your life, your, how you grew up, where you grew up, and what got you into this line of work? I'll keep it short because a lot of people like to talk about themselves too much. But uh, uh-huh. <clears throat> I grew up in, in New York and Miami, Miami mostly, most of my life, Miami. And then um, I went to school in Spain, University of Madrid, came back. And then I went to Vanderbilt. That's why I'm in, in Nashville now. To, I did postdoctoral work there. And and then I did in clinical psychology. And my specialty is neuropsychology, clinical neuropsychology. And... Um, what's called the psychoneuroimmunology, how thoughts and emotions affect the immune nervous and endocrine system. So um, I went to school to study medicine in Madrid. And what was happening is that they were having a lot of riots there. And the medical school was the most radical. So they would close the school for five, six months. So I would, I would take some psychology courses. I would come back and this went on for a while. I said, that's it, I'm done. I'm gonna leave medicine and go into psychology. So that's how fate and destiny work together in that in that sense. So uh, then I came back to the States and 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 did some more work at Vanderbilt and went into practice and got married, had kids, got divorced, uh, all the usual things that the rituals that we do. And 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 then I, I became very, very interested in writing. And uh, so I wrote two books, I had two bestsellers, as you know, and I'm working on a I just finished the third one which is, um, it gives me license to expand science because it's it's a, a novel called The Phoenix Self, how people can live up to 500 years. So uh, it's science and fiction. So the thinking is that I, I, I want to know more about how to create a, a life of, uh, of wellness and, and a life of uh, meaning and, uh, and really going back to Aristotle who actually, and I'll tell you what, Studies have been done on Aristotle and the immune system as we go along, but but the life of meaning, pleasure, and and uh, finding pleasure, meaning, and purpose are really important in your in, in your wellness. That's basically it. Uh, I'm I'm very curious, and I love to I love good wine, as I was telling you. Albariño is one of my favorite. My father was in Spain. I love to cook and uh, travel, work out, and uh, have fun. Well, one of the things I love about you and certain guests that I have, or I actually try to have all my guests, practice what you preach. I mean, you're just an amazing example of this whole psychology and mindset. And I am just so blown away. Um, Well, first of all, I just want to share with everybody that I have pretty much all your books, although I don't have The Phoenix Self yet, maybe because that's the newest. Yes, Um, not out yet. Oh, there you go. Oh, good. I'm off the hook. (laughs) I feel better. Uh, but I have been studying you since I was in college because my graduate uh, training in, in grad school, I studied sports psychology because I was always an athlete. But back in the Stone Age, they didn't have like uh, mind-body psychology and all that stuff. It just, it wasn't a, an elective uh, area to study. So the best I could do was study sports psychology because it was the closest thing to the mind-body connection. 
So my whole life, I have been fascinated and really interested in this mind-body relationship. It always would just kind of stupefy me why, I mean, let's just take like a baseball game, right? And, you know, you've got an amazing hitter who gets up to bat and in practice, he's killing it. He's hitting it out of the park, all that stuff. You know, end of the ninth inning, bases loaded, it comes up to him at plate and he strikes out. So there you go. There's the mind affecting the body, right? And to your point, thank goodness that it's becoming more accepted that the mind affects the body. But I would love for you to get into the background of how this got all disconnected. How did we mainly grow to think like the mind, like psychologists are separate than a heart doctor or whatever. Um, you know, can you just talk a little bit about the history of the separation and thank goodness how it's starting to change? Yeah, well, well mostly started with Descartes. Descartes was the one who talked about uh, mind. And what happened with Descartes is that in those days, the the, the church ruled. The, the priests were, were also doctors, and so they ruled. It was like and 1700s, right? Wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, yeah okay. Uh, and mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, I think it was a... a uh, 16th, 17th uh, century. Okay. Uh, but um, so Descartes, in order to be able to write and to be to be able to expand, he was a, a great uh, philosopher. Divided, the, he said, the the mind is is the domain of the church, the body is the domain of science. So he divided that the, the Cartesian split, they call it. And from then on, then medicine became very knowledgeable with the body, and then theologians became very knowledgeable with the mind. But it was a split. Then we went on with, um, especially psychology and psychiatry. Um, psychiatry was called the, the bastard child of medicine. And they called it the, um, the, the talk cure from, from Freud and all that. So in order to justify itself as, as, a, uh, as a science, it became super biological. And it moved away from, from mind. And now everything is pharmacological, intervention. Psychology also, in order to get some sense of, of uh, validity and, and operational science, became very behaviorist with um, uh, Skinner and the, what he called the black box where it goes in and out. There's nothing here. It's just stimulus response. My mentor at uh, Vanderbilt, my thesis professor, debunked one of, one of the people that debunked uh, Skinner. And he, they wouldn't publish his work. It's like the Inquisition. So finally, he said to one of the editors, I'm going to give you a test. If you fail it, will you publish my work? And they did. Here's what he did. Very simple study. Science has to be simple. You would think, well, stimulus response doesn't matter. Just goes in, goes out, the black box. That's that's what you are. So he gave a little test that he had people do a, a look at a, uh, uh, it was like a little pond, something like it. Uh, and, and he had a, a log with a, 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 a bird on top of the log and, and then he had a, a frog uh, and all the things that are put in, right? So then he gave him a test. He said, let's forget now and see what you remember later. And, and the test was, uh, where was the bird? Well, the bird was on top of the uh, log. And uh, who who swam under the bird, uh, under the, the log? The fish, and there was no fish. They created because fish is associated, so... so what you're doing is you have something in here that affects your response to the stimulus. 
There's no way to debunk that. There's no way to, to and much more. And, and Chomsky did a lot of work too, showing that language is not just the same as response. So basically, it, it lost a lot of power. But now, unfortunately, psychiatrists become super biological. And, and the psychiatrist will spend an average of eight minutes seeing you. You have a, uh, a nurse practitioner who sees you, and then he comes in, how's your, how, how's your appetite? How's your libido? Like, okay, we're going to do this. And that's about it, unfortunately. So they know very little psychotherapy in general, in general. So that's what's happened. So now <clears throat> psychoneurology has come in. My mentor, George Solomon, was the one who created psychoneurology. And it basically started looking at how, how psychological processes like mind and body, uh, cognition and emotions, how do they affect the nervous immune and endocrine system? And it, it does affect it. The problem is that nobody can tell you, except me, uh, how is it that the mind and the body talk to each other? That's what the first book, The Mind-Body Code. I mean, okay, mind and body communicate. How do they communicate? Well, they communicate. They don't go any further than that. The way that they communicate, you have to go back to um, anthropology. And I bring a lot of anthropology, as you know, in my work. <clears throat> 150 years ago, when we came, became homo sapiens, there was no language. We went by the smell, the pheromones of the smell. And if you saw uh, a, a lion, you would have to go, mm-mm, or, or, so, or something like that. There's no language. So you would have the stress hormones and everything. Language comes on and consciousness comes on. And consciousness comes on about maybe 40,000 years ago when we started burying our dead and we started using trinkets that had no function as, as tools. You have to have a lot of cognition to be able to do that. So then language comes in and the senses are replaced with language. Instead of smelling a lion or grunting, you say, there's a lion there. The brain had to adjust to that and had, it had to create biosymbols. It created by it adjusted to linguistics, and the immune system had to adjust to the cultural brain. That's why when you say to somebody you're so stupid, and you shame them, they have uh, interleukin two and other molecules of inflammation, as if there's some kind of pathogen out there. So we're a bioinformational field where language is a signal for the biology. That's how it, that's how it works. So language instructs our biology. Yeah, but in language biology and emotions biology. Uh, and uh, why? how is it possible that if you say to somebody, you're such a wonderful person and you smile, you get oxytocin. If you say you're such an idiot, you get molecules of inflammation because the brain is cultural and it's, and it's psycholinguistic in the way it responds to a stimulus out there. It's, okay, a, it's but, a higher consciousness. But where does the person's um, kind of belief in the importance of what the person said, like someone could just say, you know, you're an idiot and it doesn't affect you because you don't even know that person as opposed to someone that you care about and you care what they think. And that does affect you. So how does that be? How is that different? Well, internally it has to do with self-esteem. If you have good self-esteem, someone says you're an idiot. What I would say is, so tell me how I'm being an idiot. I, I make them own up. If you don't have good self-esteem, you question yourself externally. Yeah. When there are people that you give value to, like cultural editors, and they do something and they say something to you, then it has a major effect on you. So it's, again, you see, it's a, it's a contextual thing. Self-esteem is extremely important. Self-valuation is extremely important because that's how you process information. And yeah. that's how you're, 
centenarians have great self-esteem. They're what my mentor, George Solomon, called healthy cent- healthy um, narcissists. Uh-huh. So you have to have valuation. You don't have to brag about it. But if somebody says, you're so beautiful, well, thank you. Oh, uh, it's just my mother or jeans or, um, oh, I just put some makeup. What that does, it kills the opportunity for gratitude, which increases oxytocin, serotonin, endorphin, all the good psychoneurological things that enhance immune function. If you say, oh, it's just in my jeans, you get nothing. Or you should have seen me yesterday. <laughs> yeah, you should have seen me yesterday where you yeah. get a little bit of stress hormone. Uh-huh. I love your hair. I haven't watched it in three days. Yeah. Yeah. That's because the cultures teach you to devalue individual. I'll, I'll tell you something. I went to dinner the other night to my favorite place and I went by myself. So I had a great dinner and this lady, older lady comes over and she says, are you all right? I said, yeah, what, what do you mean? She said, You're eating by yourself. I said, well, yeah, I'm celebrating. So what are you celebrating? Myself? She, she didn't get it. She was really concerned that there was something wrong with me. She because called I the wasn't police. With somebody. <laughs> <laughs> she called so, the police. <laughs> yeah, so that that's how it's it's structured. Oh yeah. Absolutely. You go to a restaurant, they say only one. Mm. Can we put you by the bar? No, don't put me by the bar. So it goes against the individualizing of the person, the individuating that Jung talked about. Collectivism is good for them. When you come out of the tribe and you go beyond the pale, you get the archetypal wounds. And two things. More so as you get older and if you're female, because if you're single, there's something wrong with you. Yeah, of course. Uh-huh. Yeah, <clears throat> uh, yeah. and, uh, and, and, and because it's an age consciousness too. I never yeah. tell anybody my age. It's none of my business. And when I went to, to the longevity center um, that I work with, they do epigenetic and genetic uh, testing and all that. And, and they said, well, let's see how you do it because you talk so much about longevity. Well, I was 21 years younger than my chronological age. I love it. So when people ask me, how old are you? I'll, I'll say I'm 21 years younger than my uh, chronological age. And what's your chronological? 21 years older. The reason you don't do it is because you're pegged into the culture. If you're 20, you're treated this way. If you're 40, you're treated this way. Just like doctors, they have to have a, uh, a label, a diagnosis to reduce their own anxiety. So if they say, if this is stress or what do you want for your age? They don't know what they're talking about. So, so you see, we have a lot of admonishments constantly from the culture that hit you and you don't know it's hitting you. And my job is to let you know how you're being hit and what you can do about it. Yeah. And the, gosh, there's so much there, Mario. Um, wow. Yeah. Let, well, then let's just back up a second and just if you could explain and share with people you actually coined the term biocognition. So I know you've been talking about it, but can you just kind of define that for people so they can, and and getting into how the culture enforces our beliefs, which then determine our behaviors, which then determines the outcome. And let's just get right into the meat of that. Yeah, well, before it was biology and cognition, Uh but since, since we're inseparable, biocognition is mind and body within a cultural context. That's okay. the definition. Mind and body within a cultural context is biocognition, biocognitive mm-hmm. side. And, mm-hmm. and you cannot extract the cultural components of it. And I'll give you some examples later when we talk about it. But you can't extract that we are culture. And what is culture? Cultural anthropologists have been arguing about this for a long time. But culture basically is anything that's important for survival and meaning, which means aesthetics, ethics, sexuality, 
longevity that a group agrees to believe. That's the culture. And it's very, very difficult to get rid of. Spain was conquered by the uh, Arabs for 800 years. They mm -hmm. kept the language, they kept the, the religion, they kept their wines, the things that very difficult to get rid of. So there's a lot of good things about culture. The problem is that when you want to individuate, the culture doesn't like it because you're no longer serving the, the, the collectivism. And you have to individuate in order to become whoever it is that you want to become. And why would the culture uh, subconsciously or, or not obviously um, discourage or punish individuation? Like why? Like it, it doesn't serve the collectivism. The thinking is that at first you're you're a child and we are, we're very inept when we're born. Animals know what to do. They walk. We need... 12, 18 years for somebody to take care of us. Mm -hmm. So the collectivism is extremely important and it's set up for that. But then anything that loses its value becomes a burden. It loses its value when you want to individuate, but the culture continues to do that in order to maintain the collectivism of, uh, of, of how, do, how do we keep this? How do we maintain this without realizing that you have to individuate? Some people do. And some people don't. The ones, the ones that don't are what I call the, the, the historians. You go back 30 years to your neighborhood and they're still there and they look like hell because wow. historians don't do really well, but they can mm -hmm. tell you everything that's been going on. So that, mm -hmm. that's one of it. The, the other is that once you individuate, you begin to question the, the, the rules that you were taught by the culture editors. Uh, girls can be just as good as boys uh, with math. Um, being being a, a tall girl is not a problem. Uh, men can cry. Those kind of things. That that goes against the. I mean, think of what they say when when they say it was beyond the pale. The connotation is negative. For me, beyond the pale is great, because you're getting beyond the pale. So there's there's the admonitions that they have, and then they put you through the cultural portals. They say, okay, you're an, an infant. Now you're a child. Now you're an adolescent, a young adult. Middle age is extremely dangerous. Then you're a senior citizen, and then you die. That's it. That's mm -hmm. living the life of the uh, of the unaware, the mindlessness, and the associated different levels of perceived value of each of those stages. Yes, and even even the perception of time. Time mm. uh, goes fast here, goes slow there. Um, but if you try to individuate, and let's say you're middle-aged, and let's say middle age is 45 or whatever mm -hmm. it is. I, I don't believe in middle age because centenarians say it's dumb. You'll find out when you die. There's no such thing. But let's say 45. A day before 45, you're not middle-aged. When you reach 45, you're middle-aged. There, you have to start dressing middle-aged, looking mm -hmm. middle-aged, and getting sick like the middle-aged. Be appropriate. <laughs> Being appropriate. And then mm -hmm. if you say, you know, I just decided I'm going to give up this job I have, mm -hmm. and I'm going to do this job, and I'm going to go back to school. No, no, you can't do that. You have to start saving for your retirement so you mm. can go to a nursing home when you can't take care of yourself anymore. What the hell is that? Who wants to live that way? That gives you a message to the immune system, a sense of helplessness, and that mm -hmm. the, the bottom half is just on helplessness. What is gerontology study? The deterioration of aging, of growing older. What do I study? the causes of health and the process of growing older. Huge difference in all of medicine, I'd say. You know, yeah, they're studying much. the pathology 
because they also have a bias because who they're seeing are the sick people. The healthy people aren't going there. And I know you mentioned that in your work with the sanitarians, which just means people over a hundred, um, that for the audience, um, that they, they don't go to the doctor. Well, you know, let's, let's get into that. Yeah. You're a longevity expert. Okay. So share with us a synopsis of, you know, for 20 years you've been studying this and you've identified different qualities that enable them to be living such a high quality life. Cause it's one thing to live a long time. It's another thing to not want to, yeah, <laughs> you hard. know, so they have a good quality of life. They're enjoying their life. And also share with us the, what you call the myths of aging and, uh, or which are basically the lies of aging, the not true, the cultural beliefs that are definitely not true. Yes. Well, first you have to go back to the system. Like we did with anthropology here, we're going to go back to the system of, uh, uh, biology. Mm-hmm. Again, biology, in order to legitimize itself, it had to borrow principles from physics. And there are a lot of fi- there's a lot of physics in our body. We have a, bi- a heart that pumps, but it also communicates with the thymus and all kinds of things. So, in order to become a uh, a model using uh, physics. One of the models, one of the concepts of physics that works really well for for airplanes and and planets and everything else, is that a system go uh, it goes from order to disorder. That's the entropy they call entropy, order to disorder. That's not how we function. We're self-organizing, self-creating systems. So complexity is a better entropy. Complexity says we go from simple to complex. And the brain of a 50-year-old is a lot more complex than the brain of a Mm five-year-old. So knowing that, then you look for how complex are you becoming or how feeble are you becoming. And then gerontology is studying what what are the illnesses of aging. There are no illnesses of aging. There's no such thing. They say, well, you deteriorate, your brain deteriorates, you have the, the dementia. It depends on your genetic expression and how and what you do with your time. If you are 20 and you do cocaine for 40 for 20 years, at 40, you're gonna be in really bad shape with somebody who doesn't do cocaine. And now epigenetic, we know how to trigger and cap gene expression of illness and and, and the causes of health. That's what we're doing in Poland. Okay, so please explain to people what epigenetics is, and you talk about how biology is not as powerful as culture in affecting the way we age, live, feel, look, all that stuff. Please explain uh, epigenetics. Okay, first, uh, everything is empirical, as you know, that I talk about. I'm not just dreaming it. Mm -hmm. Um, Centenarians, when I first started studying, I thought, well, it's got to be genes. They have long telomeres and all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm, the conventional, mm-hmm. which is myth. Mm-hmm. They don't. 20% genetics, that's it. 20%. Even long telomeres, they have long telomeres, short telomeres. Telomeres are the caps that you have at the end of the uh, chromosomes. And it was thought that the longer, the more, the more, you, uh, you, the longer you live because of more of the uh, reproduction of cells. But now we know that that uh, telomerase is an enzyme that actually creates telomeres and 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 nourishes them. One of the get one of the ways to get um, uh, telomerase is self love. Mm-hmm. What's up? So so what is epigenetics? It's another mm-hmm. thing that people talk about and they really don't go deep into it unless you're uh, an epigeneticist. Mm-hmm. 
But basically, the thinking is genetics, you're inheriting your genes, you have your DNA and, and, and the nucleus, and, and, and then uh, the genes are passed on by your father, your mother, your mother will give you the uh, mitochondria for the cells, all of that. Mm-hmm. And that's it. That's it. You, the environment doesn't have anything to do with it. It's just genetics. And unfortunately, most of medicine still functions that way. Genetics. It's in your family. What do you want? You got diabetes type 2? It's going to happen. Epigenetics mm-hmm. looks at how the environment, external and internal, can change in uh, gene expression either by capping it with me- uh, methylating. It's called methylating or with uh, histone capping based on what the environment is showing you and the environment inside you, what is showing you. Mm-hmm. So what we do in, in the in the place in Poland, for example, is let's say you, you take your, your genetics and epigenetics and they find that you have a propensity for diabetes. That's a propensity, not, not, not a, uh, a genetic sentence. And then they teach you ways to cap that potential expression for diabetes. No medication, just methods using some of my techniques. Also, sometimes they'll use uh, supplements. For example, if you have a, a propensity for selenium to not be absorbed very well in your body, all you have to do is you take, and of course you measure it to see if it's true because it's only a propensity. You take one Brazil nut a day and that's more than you need for uh, for selenium. That's it. Mm-hmm. So, so epigenetics is basically saying, not only do we inherit our genes, but we inherit a potential to be expressed or not be expressed. And there are some exceptions. There are about two or three percent of that. You, you already you're born with a genetic mistake. Uh, with uh, if you have a particular problem with uh, some some uh, genes, you might have a Down syndrome, or you might have uh, illnesses that are that uh, MD and things like that that come mm-hmm. from faulty genes. The person's not faulty. The genes are faulty. But other than that. It's acquired, and we're, we're sold the concept that you always have to you, you have to be on medication and you have to be on this. Some people do, or it's destiny. Most people are over medicated. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And getting back to your questions as, as centenarians, I asked one, when was the last time you went to the doctor? And I'm, I'm not I'm not suggesting this. I'm giving you an anthropological report here. Um, he said, "Oh, 70 years ago when I broke my my leg. Oh, and the, the doctor took yoga care of it. It's really good. And and." You haven't been back? No. Why Why should I go back? So I said, what does your doctor have to say? Said, They're all dead. I don't know. <laughs> exactly. Okay. So, you know, now, I don't suggest that you don't that you don't go to the doctor, but I suggest that you be very careful because it's your body. Your doctor knows more physiology than, than you do. You know more phenomenology than he does or she does mm-hmm. of your body. So mm-hmm. centenarians, they say, you got to take this and this. What What is the side effect? Well, you could have a, you could have a heart attack. Nope. No, I don't want it. You you got to take it because it's it's a risk benefit factor. No, I'm not going to take it. And if anything happens to me, I won't sue you. Mm-hmm. They take responsibility for their action. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the crux of your work is that the culture influences our beliefs, which then determines our actions and our behaviors and the way we live our life and the way we think. And... We don't know it. Like, we're not aware of that this right. is even happening. You know, I mean, just because you, you give the example of, you know, the perception that diseases and illnesses run in families based on 
uh, genetics, you know, has been so pervasive. But if you just go down the street and or you go to a restaurant, you see a family eating together, and let's just say, oh, wow, what do you know? They're all, you know, a little bit overweight and they all kind of look the same. And so, you, same. You, yeah. yep. And you think, oh, wow, okay, so it's true. Well, look, you know, dad's heavy, mom's heavy, uh, daughter's heavy, you know, baby's, you know, a little chubby. So it runs and, in the family. And so you think, oh, see, genetics, it runs in the family. Yeah. And what you what people don't consider is behaviors and expectations run in the family. And what I love about your work is the power of a self-fulfilling prophecy and the power of what you believe is true. Because I know, like you, everyone's always asking me my age. And I do often tell them, though, because I feel like, first of all, people need to see it's possible. You know, they need to, we need to get this in our collective unconscious of this is possible to age well. And I think you actually have said you can age better. Sanitarians actually are healthier as they get older. What a mind-blowing concept. It's completely contrary to what everyone thinks now. Because you had more practice. If you're 90 and healthy, you had more practice at keeping your causes of health. Mm-hmm. But I'll give you some idea, some some examples of, of culture, how, how it really affects. Please. Okay. Many, many studies, thousands of studies, but I'll just give you some things that are really more uh, pertinent here. Major studies were done years ago looking at the effect on how people perceive um, lucky numbers or, or unlucky numbers. And they looked at Asian Americans, thousands of Asian Americans, and in uh, Japanese and Chinese and other languages, then the number four uh, ha- is associated with death. Mm. So th- that, that's how, how, it, how it's perceived. They looked at death certificates and they found a significant statistical correlation between the fourth of each month and death. Well, they looked at uh, Americans and they thought, okay, let's see what if uh, the uh, Friday 13th and and they couldn't find correlation because Friday 13th is an unlucky number, but it doesn't mean you're going to die. Examples of that. As I mentioned earlier, because you've been to my webinars and all that, but, um, you think about uh, menopause. It's hormonal and it's got a change of life. In some countries, like in Uruguay and other places, they, they call it bochorno, which means shame. And shame causes inflammation. So when they have the hot flashes, they have all kinds of problems. Inflammation, mm-hmm. low self-esteem, wow. low libido. Well, in America, it's called the curse in a lot of The curse, that's right. Families. So curse, all of that is- Like, hello. <laughs> it's it's very um yeah. it's very shaming. Mm-hmm. In Japan, they call it konenki, which means the second spring, the second chance. None mm-hmm. of those symptoms. In fact, their libido goes up, their self-esteem goes up, the worthiness goes up, and they become mm-hmm. teachers for other women. So that's another example of of uh, culture. So and I can go on and on and on, but we can move on to whatever you want. Yeah. Well, I, I think just to wrap that up, you know, people just have to consider, you know, wh- what they expect is going to happen as they get older. What is considered to be quote unquote normal? And what I always say is there's a difference between something being normal and something being typical, you know, unfortunately, because people getting more fatigue, gaining weight, losing strength, losing vitality, their eyesight going down the tubes, 
you know, losing their memory and their balance. And all these things might be typical because we're seeing them around us, but it doesn't mean it's normal. And what's absolutely critical is for people to really seriously question their beliefs and really pay attention to the words they use and the things that they say about themselves and their life and what they expect is going to happen. Because I started a long time ago telling myself things like, my life gets better as I get older. I get healthier as I get older. I, you know, because I get more wise and I get less caring about what everyone else thinks and I get more, you know, more agency over myself and more self-aware. So all these little practices and thoughts, people just have to be conscious of, you know, happens all the time. Someone forgets something walking into a room. Now, if they're older, they might say, whoops, having a senior moment. Oh my God, I'm losing my mind. I might get dementia. Whereas if it was someone who was 15 years old and forget something walking in the room, they'll just say, oh, I forgot something. There's a, there's a method of, of looking at that. That's, that's, you're right. It's the, it's the attribution. The attribu- without knowing it, you give it an attribution based on, on the portal that you're in. So if you forget something, the attribution, because you're 80, is that it's dementia. Mm-hmm. The, if you're 20, the attribution is, I just forgot. Yes. But what do you do neuropsychologically? What do you do when that happens and you're 80? You go to the kitchen and you forgot why you went to the kitchen from the bedroom. Go back to the bedroom where you registered the memory and you'll get it. And you realize that it's just you're not paying attention to things. There, mm-hmm. There's a little deterioration that goes on, but it's minimal when you get away from the attributions of the portal. Mm-hmm. And and then and, and that, that the senior moment, you never, as you said, you never say senior moment because uh, what, what the attribution says if this is happening because of this, I'm helpless about it. Mm-hmm. If this is happening because I'm giving it the wrong attribution, I'm empowered about it and I can do something. Absolutely. It's just so critical. And, you know, um, sit, when you hear people even say things like, uh, well, you know, it's tough getting older, you know, and it's, <laughs> it's people just have to be very conscious of the words they use because your body's always listening and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And remember the language that I talked about. The language now is bioinformational. So whatever you say, it's like, for example, you're, you're driving and somebody gets in front of you and they almost hit you. Immediately you're going to have, especially uh, norepinephrine and epinephrine, and then later you have some cortisol, which takes a little longer. But then instead of letting it go and taking it as a signal to slow down and listen to the music, not only do you ruminate it, but you can't wait to get to work to tell people. To relive it. Yeah, the biology doesn't know that it's over. Your cognition knows, but your biology continues to secrete whatever it is that you're talking mm-hmm. about because mm-hmm. you're talking about it and you're creating a little theater. Mm-hmm. Although your cognition knows that it didn't happen, biology doesn't. So mm-hmm. what happens at the end of the day when you do that? And, and of course, somebody else will out-victimize you. Oh, you, you're not going to believe this. Two cars got in front of me yesterday It's, it's to out-victimize each other. Mm-hmm. So you're creating a toxicity at work, a toxicity at home. When somebody gets in front of me, I'll curse them in a couple of languages. I take a deep breath and let it go. And I and I say, okay, I got to pay attention to my music and this. But there's always a temptation, especially when there's a a vacuum, a social vacuum. You talk about the weather or something bad that happened. I force myself not to mention it to anybody. Nothing. Mm-hmm. How was your day today? Great. How was your driving? Fine. That's it. If not, you're rerunning toxicity. And do that for 50 years and see what it'll do to you. 
I love that. Our words are so powerful. It's like my episode 69 with Laurel Arica, and we talk about the magic power of words and how you're basically casting spells by the power of what you speak. Yeah. And you're, you're calling it into being. And like what you're saying is you just keep reliving it biologically, which, you know, just never, never helps to detoxify and purge those emotions. Um, and you talk about there's a difference between being a victim and being victimized. I think this is important. Can you oh, talk yes. a little bit about that? <clears throat> yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Yes. Um, you're a victim. If somebody rapes you, you're a victim. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you have been, you have been victimized. Mm-hmm. But if you use that as a way to manipulate, to get out of things, as a way to get pity, then you are victimizing yourself. You're victimizing. You, you, you live in victimhood and you speak it fluently. Like Carolyn May says that, that, that you speak uh, woundology. Mm. So, and and that's, that's what it is. So once you've been victimized, you re-empower yourself with whatever you need to do. And you never use that as a way of manipulating or getting what you want. Otherwise, your body will give you a passport to maintaining victimhood. And your body will adjust because the body has an ethical process that okay if you if you're a victim you have a headache today and the culture will set it up so victims get a lot we have a system where victims get uh, or victimized get uh, get a lot and uh, I'll, I'll call you and say do you want to go to the mall uh no i'm gonna I'm, I'm just gonna relax and do a little meditation take a hot bath i'll do it some other time come on but if you say i have a migraine oh okay what can i do for you you get a pass a pass to victimhood. It's acceptable. Mm-hmm. Very important. If I have a headache and people say, how do you feel? I look at the part of me that doesn't hurt and I, say, I feel good, so I don't lie. I, I think of my toes. They don't hurt. I'm, I'm pretty feeling pretty good about my toes. If I talk about the migraine, we're going into victimhood language and my body will say, well, if this is what's going on with you. This is what's happening and we're going to keep it. And you get power. The power of the victim. Mm. Yeah. So that learned helplessness. Yeah, learn helplessness. And and learn empowerment means that you have to access resources to overcome a challenge. That's what empowerment is. And then uh you've also talked about how um not only with the victimhood, but uh there's reasons that people can subconsciously keep an illness. Yes. Yes. Or get a um, disease. So can you can you share with us a little bit about sure. that? And, and I'll talk about it because I, I don't want to be irresponsible and say that people create their illnesses because you know, uh, uh, my background is in biology and I, and, and I want to be. But at the same time, what it means, not that you cre- you don't create an illness. What you do is you facilitate the gene expression of an illness okay. by how you think. So, for example, you uh, there are two things that, that need to happen for a person to heal. You can cure somebody and not necessarily heal them. What I found in many, many years of hospital work and private practice and all kinds of things is that you have to look at two things. You have the illness. You don't tell the person you created it or anything because they didn't. But you have to know what is this illness allowing me to get away from that I don't want to do. Secondary gains, extremely important. If you don't work that out, you're not going to get rid of the illness. And the other one that nobody talks about is, what is it getting me out to do that I don't feel worthy of doing? Yes. That's another one. Those two, if you don't work those two out, very difficult to, to, to heal. You could be cured, but it comes right back. 
And that's, that's, that's where the illness becomes. And you would ask, well, why would someone get sick to not be able to do something that they love because of self-esteem? People who win the lottery lose it on, uh, on the average for uh, in 18 months. And joy can be a very dangerous emotion. If you dangerous, <laughs> yes, <because laughs> joy is like uh, it's like the fuel, and if your self esteem is low, it, it won't go in. If it becomes a uh, it becomes a threat, people sometimes end relationships because they're too good. Or well, they, back they, to our self sabotaging behavior, yeah, right? Yeah, that's right. This is too good. I, how do I handle this? So, yep. known misery is less stressful than unknown joy. Yes, the 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 known yep the known misery is less stressful than the unknown joy. It's so so true. So once again, we come back to a feeling of unworthiness for why we can sabotage ourselves because a lot of people fear failure, of course, so they don't start things because they don't want to fail because they have low self esteem, and then we also fear success and we put a cap on like how good our life can be because. Well, why? Because we don't feel worthy? I mean, how do we fix that? <laughs> well, I'll tell you another little study. I know I've uh, done that. That's for sure. No, I mean, we all we all do. Um, one, this, this psychologist, I think, Snowden, he's a, a British psychologist. He looked at people that consider themselves to be lucky and unlucky. Mm. And he divided into two groups. Looked at them 10 years later. The lucky people were healthier, better relationships, better jobs, more money. The unlucky, uh, the opposite. Why? The attribution. He found that the lucky people will say, if something good happens, I'm lucky. That's me. If something bad happens, that's not going to last because I'm lucky. Look at the opposite. Uh, something bad happens, well, that's it. That's me. Something good happens, it's not going to last. Those oh, my God. So alone, true. That's so those true. two things alone will, will deal with your longevity and your wellness. Oh, my God. I'm not going to mention names, but I have people very close to me that that, that is their mindset is like, they're always kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop and quote unquote, looking at the other side, like being devil's advocate, so to speak. And, you know, just kind of always flipping it around, like um, as, a way, as a way of self-protection, I, yeah. I know, like, you know, but still it's like, they don't, we have to be conscious to let the good in. And I think, you know, I can share too. I have a, I, I don't have children. I have a, um, a little puppy. Well, she's 13. Oh, but we don't talk about age. <laughs> she's a uh, age because now she's uh pegged <laughs> well i i always call her puppy on purpose and she is like everyone thinks she's a puppy too so there you go but um i i just i can't even tell you how deeply i love this animal she i always say she's like my heart with fur on it she i just put all of my maternal everything and she's just i could go on and on but what i'm getting at is Unfortunately, and maybe you could tell me what the profes professional term for this is, because I know there is one. Um, sometimes, I, and I know parents feel like this with their children. The love is so overwhelming in my heart. I feel like my heart's going to burst. And that's kind of when you cry and suck as you tears of happiness. But then I go right to, oh my God, but she's going to die. And probably, you know, Within the next 10 years, let's just say that's pretty practical. You know, I mean, and oh my God, how am I going to function? So I immediately check it, that that love and that joy and that what you call an exalted emotion gets checked and sabotaged in myself from fully feeling it because my brain goes to the, 
oh crap, but you know, what about when she's gone? You know, so help me with that. <laughs> well, yeah, that, that's an attachment issue that, that it's very, very important that love then after a while becomes need. Ah. So you have to spread out your love. Very important. Uh, because if you don't, then whether, whether it's one person or whatever, you, you might want to ask yourself, and yeah, and I'm saying it for the audience as we all do this and you're doing it with a dog, but we'll, okay, what is it that this person provides or this thing or this animal provides for me? And you're going to find that it's either or three belongingness, a sense of joy and companionship. All right. Those things are really important, but we disown that and we put it on the other person or the dog or whatever. We think that they're giving us that rather than we uh, owning it ourselves. So one of the things you can do is when you're alone, wow. belongingness, what is the terrain for belongingness? You know that we don't change behavior, we change terrains. The terrain for belongingness is permission to be where you are. So let's say you go take yourself out to dinner and you're there by yourself. Belongingness is not being with a dog or somebody else. I give myself permission to be here and embody that. That's belongingness. Joy, you're not with your dog or not with your partner or whatever. How do I create self-significance in what I'm doing that creates joy? And companionship, if I'm not with that person or that animal or whatever, what kind of relationship do I have with myself when I'm alone? And how do I enhance that? And then the love will become something that, that's one thing the centenarians do. They know how to mourn without dying with their dead. Mm. And they know how not, not to get sick with unrequited love. I love that. You know, I've never heard it all explained that way. Uh, that is tremendous. Uh, wow. And, and you know, and, uh, just on the sanitarian thing, you, you shared that another thing they do um, is they're very attached to their joy. Not only do they, they control how they speak and what they think, but the they most importantly, um, you know, because I'm all about healthy lifestyle, mom, body, spirit, all important and I, I talk about how our thoughts and our beliefs are like ingredients that we have to pay attention to just as if eating a carrot or an organic chicken leg or whatever. These yeah. are all very important ingredients to the holistic part of who we are. But how you point out how the sanitarians in your research, they don't really obsess too much about make sure you're eating healthy and don't smoke and all that. And you actually give examples of to them, the important thing is their self-agency, their connection to their joy, and they have rituals. And yes. they, some of them even smoke one cigar at night before they go to bed. Well, you've so, done some really good research with my work. I'm impressed. Oh, heck yes. Oh, <laughs> you have no idea. So please, can you just really expand on that? Because yes. this is really critical. I mean, everybody's thinking, well, you got to exercise. you got you got to stay attached to your joy and you have to have rituals. So explain, please, the difference between rituals and routines and how we can learn from the sedentarians. Yes. Um, what, what I found is that uh, causes of health, one of the causes of health is rituals. And examples that you know already, because I talked about it in the book, but this woman in, in Cuba, she was 101 or 102. I didn't ask, what are your rituals? Because that biases. I did more in anthropological ethnography. Mm -hmm. I said, what are the things that you do? that have meaning for you to end the day or to start the day that you find joy as a way of saying, what is my joy and what is my coach? Oh, I, like I have a, a shot of rum before I go to sleep. Number one, ritual. Number two, flexibility and, and, and uh, boundaries. How many do you have? One. Why don't you have more? 
That's all I want. They don't abuse rituals. They abuse routines. You don't abuse love. You abuse need. So that's very important. If you are, if you are a vegan centenarian, and they're not too many, but there's some, very few, and you're invited to a barbecue here in Nashville, they'll eat the barbecue. Inflexibility is worse than, than eating uh, McDonald's uh, and fries because inflexibility creates a sense of uh, uh, an urgency of fear or something. So if you're, if you're living in life and not eating this and not eating that out of fear, forget it. Love that. So mm-hmm. the important thing is that mm-hmm. you do things. I don't eat a lot of meat. Every once in a while, once a month, I'll eat meat when I want to not. Oh, I'm going to eat meat because it's been a month. You can't do that. You got to live your life because your body was made to take everything with the Aristotelian mean. If you if you abuse tofu, it's going to be just as worse if you, as if you use a cheeseburger. So that's the thing about centenarians. They have rituals. They have the Aristotelian mean when they know when to stop. And they have a tremendous amount of discipline, but not self-righteous or rigid discipline, but compassionate discipline for themselves. Not because they're punishing themselves or um, you say that culturally we, uh, oh, we have like a culture of, of glorified suffering. Like it's, it's important. The misery, it's, the known misery. That's yeah. right. Uh, and uh, I, I was in, in Peru a few years ago doing a, um, a lectures, a huge audience. And there was this woman who was very famous because she had uh, had cancer and she was a cancer survivor. And, and so she starts talking and people applaud and all that. And I said, I want you to, I'm going to do a little, uh, little test here. I want you to talk to me for five minutes without the word cancer. She couldn't. Nice. She couldn't. I said, what's happening is your identity is the survival of cancer. So you, so how many organs are you going to have taken out? You survived your lungs, you're surviving. And and a lot of people take those things as a badge, a cancer survivor. You don't want to be a survivor or anything. You want to be a thriving person. And, and you never say, my this, my that. It's not your illness. It's something that comes and go, why? Because language has attribution. So important. It is just so important. I'm so glad you said that. You actually also say that we create our our identity and basically from the relational opposites. So the duality in life, like we, um, I'm fat or I'm thin, I'm young, yeah. I'm old, I'm a woman, I'm a man. So can you expand on h- how we create our identity? Let's just say someone, I'm born a woman and yes, I am overweight right now. So it, how do I create that? You know, what, can you okay. explain what you mean by that? Let's talk about obesity then or, 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 or um, <laughs> food. Mm-hmm. It's not hormonal, it's food mono. Okay. Food mono. Okay. The first thing. The second thing (laughs) is if you're trying to lose weight without looking at your hologram, it'll be yo-yo up and down and up and down. You have to create a hologram. Hologram is, can you define hologram? A hologram is uh, if you, let's say you're 20 pounds overweight. Well, you have to go back and look at the hologram. Were you born overweight? Most likely not. What did that overweight do to your, to your thinner hologram? What was it? Was it protection? Was it uh, an excess because you were lacking something else? And what would happen if you lose your weight? What would you be afraid of if you lose your weight? Oh, nothing, nothing. You got to teach people to think because they they don't about those things. Oh, nothing. I want to lose my weight. What would you be afraid of if you lose your weight? 
what could you do that you can't do now that you don't feel worthy of doing? So you see, you go back, back to, to working with yep. self-esteem. Self-sabotage. So then you begin to uh -huh. uh, visualize the hologram of how you want to look, <clears throat> but what are the things you do with the hologram and the anxiety that you feel when somebody looks at you and they say, oh, you look really great. What is that going to do? People, when they lose weight, for example, they're overweight and they have to go sideways in a narrow place. After they lose their weight, they still go narrow because the hologram's still there. So you have to recall the hologram. Or they walk by a window and see their reflection. They don't even identify themselves because they're kind of stuck in the... Yeah. The brain requires a, a time to recall the hologram. Uh-huh. And look so at, for example... Self-concept. Self-concept. Yeah, but, but, but it's actually a hologram because when you have the, the phantom limb, you lose your arm, mm. it, still, it still hurts and it still itches. Mm. The hologram's still there and there's some techniques to get it out. The, the body makes a hologram of time, space, and you, and you lose your arm and it still hurts, although there's nothing there. So how do we uh, uh, adjust and upgrade our hologram to what we want? With a phantom limb or just in general? Just in general, like let's go back to the okay. obese person well, or whatever. Well, by first... Uh, identifying that it had a it had a functional purpose that lost its function. Okay. Initially, gaining weight was either to protect yourself against some sexual abuse that you had, because uh, or you were depressed and you ate so much to use that as a way of of, of finding joy, mm -hmm. or because you were told that in the family that uh, everybody's fat. Whatever it is, it mm -hmm. had a function. In order to to adjust to these circumstances or to the uh, to the tribe, you had to gain weight. There are people in rural areas that, and, and, and what does the language say? In Italy, the grandmother will say, "Eat everything because love is food, and food is yes. love." Yes. Mm -hmm. So all those things. So learn where it came from, and when did it become dysfunctional? And realize that it has nothing to do with food. Forget the food. It has to do with the terrain that feeds the food. Mm -hmm. The mindset. Yeah. Yeah. So, and the techniques, there are ways of doing it, as you know, from the book and other things that I do. But basically, that's the idea. You have to recall the hologram to what it was at some point and understand that it had a function for you to do that. So, for example, it had a function when you were, let's say, a person was sexually abused as a child. The word no is very important at three and four. But what happens at the word no doesn't mean anything. You are abused and you say no, and it still happens. So the word no means nothing. So you don't know how to set boundaries. The word mean, uh, no means nothing. All you have is your body, nothing else. Your body and no boundaries. What happens? You either become a prostitute, a drug addict, you, be, you gain weight. Something happens in order for you to compensate for that. So you have to go back always developmentally. How did this happen? And, mm. and see yourself as intelligent that you had to be that way to survive. And then, okay, now I don't need this anymore. What am I doing? What am I rerunning that is no longer functional? And there's something I think in, in biology that it's my theory, but I think, I think it's really powerful that uh, when you're doing something for survival, there's an override and you don't get sick because survival overrides. But once you, you, you keep doing that, it no longer has a survival need, mm -hmm. you get sick. Fibromyalgia, I've seen it. Is survival not to sleep well because you're protected. Uh, the grandfather comes in to touch or whatever. After a while, grandfather's not there and you still are hyper vigilant. It's not mm. functional anymore. So you have uh, sleep deprivation with Delta and then fibromyalgia comes in. 
Okay, let's talk about the immunology of illness and how that's associated with beliefs and the correlation between inflammation. Well, let's get into the the, the archetypal wounds. This is a real foundational piece of your work, okay. I think. The three the three main ones how they manifest, and more importantly, what you call the antidote to them and, and how they can affect us biologically. So how the, this is literally, folks, how the mind affects the body. What I found in, in many, many cultures was that there are only three ways, fortunately, that a, that a culture can, can hurt you. All the others are subsumed under that. And each has a, a different kind of psychoterminology. Um, so the, the most primitive is abandonment. You can, if you're abandoned when you're a child, you die. You, you, you're left in the forest, you, you die. So that's the first. <clears throat> that, that feels cold when it happens because you're having constriction of your vascular system. And the feeling is aloneness. Everybody in the kindergarten class, the mommies are there and your mommy's not there. And you begin to feel a tremendous sense of, of uh, aloneness, isolation, and your body constricts and it's cold. That's abandonment. Shame is a little higher. You can't shame a child till they can identify themselves in a mirror. And people will say, well, I can, I can shame my child at, at two. No, you scare them. You don't shame them. You have to have a cognition to be able to be shamed. You have oh. to be, have a, a, a selfhood. Mm-hmm. And shame is hot. And the feeling in shame is that you want the earth to swallow you. <laughs> they just mm. don't want to be there. You just want to um, disappear. Mm-hmm. They disappear. And the, the reaction is, as we talked about, it, it's the inflammation. The, the tumor necrosis factor, uh, the uh, interleukin-2 and others, that comes out and it's hot. Which presents as any, it, virtually any disease or fibromyalgia or uh, autoimmune diseases, th- uh, thyroid problems. Yeah, that's I'll, inflammation. I'll give you a, a correlation with each, not a fact, uh, cause, but a correlation. And the third, mm-hmm. which is the hardest, hmm. is betrayal. Okay. So abandonment, shame, and betrayal, the three big Abandonment, ones. shame, and betrayal. Abandonment is cold, shame is hot, and betrayal is hot. Because the emotion is anger. You have been tricked. You have yeah. been used. And yeah. if you do it to a child, you'll see that they don't get embarrassed. You say, um, here's my iPhone. You can play with it. Do a little dance for me. And the child does a dance. Says, nope, I'm not going to give it to you. They don't, they, they don't get abandoned or shame. They get angry and they yeah, turn yeah. red. Yeah. So the emotion is red, but look how interesting this is. It's red, and they're getting constriction. With constriction, with anger, is one. Constriction with fear is the other. Constriction with fear is cold. Constriction with anger is hot. Okay, so what you're saying is that the vessels in the body will constrict, which means they close, they get smaller, they get tense, we get muscle tension. And then, but there's two types of constriction. One is, yeah, one one constricts when you're angry, hot, but the other one constricts when you're cold, uh, and and uh, and so which is abandonment. Aband- yeah, abandonment. Okay. Same hormones. Wow. But the the mindset will tell it, okay, if this is hot, this is going to be how this is. The correlation with illnesses, and then I'll tell you the the antidote, as you know. But the correlation with illness is not a cause correlation is that when you have an abandonment wound, there's a tendency for underimmunity, hypoimmunity. Mm. And that what that triggers is potential infections, cancer, anything that has low immunity. Mm-hmm. Not a cause, a correlation. Uh, uh, the shame 
because of the constant uh, inflammatory kind of baseline systemic related to autoimmune illnesses. Now there's a lot of indication that autoimmune illnesses can, can be actually triggered by a constant inflammation because inflammation is necessary when you have a, a cut or a pathogen. Mm-hmm. But when it's systemic and the immune system doesn't know where to go, something happens and it, it begins to confuse itself. And one of the theories is that it creates autoimmune. I've seen over 300 cases of uh, fibromyalgia, 90% shaming wound. So many people carry shame. I had a, one of my episodes, I think it was 74, on trauma and unresolved trauma. I mean, I mean, we if you're born in the Judeo-Christian uh, culture, you're born with shame because of, you know, the story of Adam and Eve. Like, we're shamed. If you're a woman, you're shamed because, I mean, we talked about the curse, right? So there's just like an inherent shame, I think, in all of us. And God forbid, if you were the victim or something happened to you or any kind of abuse— there's tremendous shame there. So, and I know shame is a barrier to uh, overcoming addictions, right? And yeah. and just getting back to the self worth and all that. Like, and people who who love themselves and take care of themselves. So many people don't take care of themselves because they really just don't consider themselves to be valuable enough to, to be deserving the care. And that's a shame issue, right? Yeah. Yeah. All so, three of them can cause that. All three of them can really affect your self-esteem. But the antidotes, because <clears throat> I know we're running late yeah, here, the yeah. antidote for abandonment is commitment, but commitment to self. Yeah. For um, for shame, honor, honor to self. And for, uh, for betrayal, uh, loyalty to self. Mm-hmm. One disempowers you, the other one empowers you. And it doesn't have to be related. You don't have to be honorable related to the shaming honor in general honor consciousness and you you know in the book there's a yep. explanation that, but basically mm-hmm. you learn to live honor consciousness if you have an an, an archetypal wound of uh of um a shame commitment consciousness if you have one on abandonment yep. and loyalty consciousness if you have one on betrayal okay yeah, that's just such important part of your work that we're going to refer everybody to the the books and audio books and even your webinars go into that too. It's just so fantastic. Before I let you go, though, can we talk um, about your thoughts on uh, the over-masculinization of women common in culture today and the difference between gender and gender identity that we're currently all kind of they're up against, you know, transgenderism and how do you identify as a male or a female? Please share your thoughts on the, those things. Okay, I'll give myself permission to be politically incorrect then, which means science with a backbone. There you go. Thank you. Glad someone's got one. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> well, first, um, I think that what's happened is 60 years ago, it was very rare for women to have cardiovascular problems. Hmm. And the way that would explain is, well, because the hormonal uh, uh, difference and when they have children, all kinds of now women have as much cardiovascular problems as men because they have taken male characteristics to represent their female strength. They have masculinized themselves with a power suit. And if you're a CEO and you're a woman, you have to be a, a, a bee and all that kind of thing mm-hmm. because you grow with the uh, corporate ladder. Mm-hmm. The same with, with male consciousness rather than female strength. That's mm-hmm. the first part. So you have to look for the goddess. You have to look for Aphrodite, for example. Um, her son was not very good. Uh, hmm. Her son was uh, the god Phoba, uh, the hmm. god of uh, fear. But anyway, 
So that's one thing. <clears throat> Some men now are so feminized. I don't mean sexually feminized in mm -hmm. their consciousness. Yes. In some places like Denmark, they go and do their nails with their partners and mm -hmm. they do this with their partners and, they, and everything has to be done with a partner. Now there's some incidences of male breast cancer. Mm. <laughs> wow. All right. So yeah. we were made biological, not, not gender. Are they called metrosexuals or something? Metrosexual, yeah. Yeah, okay. It's basically yeah. the manipulative. They do that to manipulate women to be liked. So oh. it's, it's not real. Oh. Uh, I mean, it's not genuine. But getting back to the sense to the to the genders, we have two genders. Yep. Two genders. Women have XX chromosome, XY men. Some women have XX, and but it's a rare. The woman passes on the mitochondria to the child, which is the part of the of the cells that gives you energy. If you die now, a hundred years from now, they'll be able to tell you we're a woman, and on and on and on. So you're saying it's bi it's biological, it's physiologically different. Yeah. And and not how about the body parts? I mean, you're born with or with something. People mm -hmm. who had uh transsexual from male to female. Okay. We had to work with them for a year, dressed as woman, living as woman, to reduce the suicide rate to 10%. Hmm. Because it was very high. So because you say I am it or it or that, it doesn't change your biology. Even if you have a transsexual. Uh, the plumbing has been changed. Mm -hmm. You are still a woman or you are still a man. Because of the chromosomes? Is that what you're saying? Well, the chromosomes, the, 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 uh, the, the, uh, if you have a, you go from, from, fe from female to male, you're still going to have ovaries. And you have to have hormonal work to, to reduce the, the, the expression of the, of the, uh, testosterone. Yep. And all that, all of that. Mm -hmm. But you can call yourself whatever you want. You want to be it, whatever, but it doesn't change your gender. There's gender. Okay. There are only two genders and as many gender identities that people want. So when I do, okay. sometimes I'll do TikTok and people will say, what's your pronoun? I'm not interested in pronouns. I'm interested in character. Mm -hmm. I don't care about pronouns. Nice. That's what I tell them. And if they don't like it, they can leave. So the, and now there's, mm -hmm. this is child abuse. I think people that are mm -hmm. ignorant of developmental psychology and ignorant of evolutionary biology, are now in Minnesota, they have uh, one of the schools putting kids through um, a gender training. In six weeks, they have to identify what kind of pronoun they have. Unbelievable. Stupidity, because children need psychosexual development. Mm -hmm. And what happens, it used to be called gender, uh, gender identity disorder. Mm -hmm. Can't call it that anymore. Now it's uh, adolescent uh, dysphoria. It doesn't matter. What happens is... Some people, some kids, some adolescents, it's not unusual. They go through some issues of identity. Ninety <clears throat> percent of it gets resolved itself. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, so parents will, a kid will say, uh, "A boy, mommy, look, I want to wear a dress." Okay, wear a dress. From now on, you're a girl. That's child abuse. They don't have the developmental psychosexual process to go through and work it out on their own. Ninety percent work it out on their own. Ten percent need help, not wow. to change. But to to adjust to what they you I'm a woman okay we're going to adjust you to be a woman, ten percent. Mm -hmm. So the people that are running these things are idiots and know nothing about biology or psychology. And and a lot of parents aren't speaking up because they That's fear right. the backlash and being quote unquote politically correct. So it just goes on and on and on. I mean it's pretty common now. Yeah, but it's also sexy to say my my son wants to be a girl and I'm helping yeah. him be a girl. Yeah, that's stupidity. You have to let them have a psychosexual processing. And then later, if they want to be female, 
They can be BFM, but they have to go through a process. You can't impose it with the, uh, I, I think political correctness is, is intellectual fascism. <laughs> so uh, yeah. anyway, that's what I have to say. Yeah. Science with a, ba- and, and I will argue with any scientist about that mm-hmm. uh, because mm-hmm. it's really there. It's, it's, it's all there. And, and now. What's really there? What? The, the gender. Some okay. people are yeah. born and very early. I've seen them very mm-hmm. early. They feel that this is not my body. Yes. Let's say little girl, this is not mm-hmm. my body. That's mm-hmm. fine. That's rare, but you have to pay attention to it and you have to help them that if this is not my body, what kind of body do you want to have? That's fine. Mm-hmm. But that's mm-hmm. rare. It's very rare. But what about the people that say my whole life, ever since childhood, I didn't really identify with being a girl or a man or whatever. And I always, you know, they, or the parents will say, yeah, ever since they were young, they played with dolls, not trucks. And they just, you know, what about those people that are saying, I, it's, that's all how I always was though. Well, yeah, because they have a propensity. That's what I'm talking about. They have a okay. propensity and, and that's there. And that could, and nothing is biological. Not, nothing is environmental. It's a combination of the two. But there's a difference between growing up that way and then the power of suggestion when a child is too That's young right. to even, is what you're saying. That That's right. Because in general, you have to look at the general, not the, the specific, the yeah. the, uh, the exclusions and then making everything out of the minority. You can't do that. Yeah. So it was a study that was done by feminists who felt that there was no such thing as culture. Hmm. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with feminism, but there's something wrong with radical feminism. And we hmm. can talk about that some other day. But hmm. uh, anyway, so they did a study and they had children, very young children. And they gave the boys dolls and they gave the girls little tanks. Within a couple of weeks, the boys were using the dolls to sword fight and the girls were putting the tanks to bed. That's funny. Oh, wow. That's funny. They didn't like the results. Yeah. So there's biology, but there's also choice. Mm -hmm. But you have to let them work work it out in their own developmental process before you put it on, on them. My best friend was gay. Mm-hmm. And I always knew he was something about him. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he married and went through hell. He mm-hmm. had two kids. And and he told me, uh, uh, one day he, he got drunk. And he said, I got to tell you something. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm gay and I'm going to get a divorce and I'm gay. I said, hey, that's no big deal. I've always mm-hmm. known this. What's your problem? You yep. think I'm going to reject you now because you're gay? Mm-hmm. But look at the suffering that that person went through. Yeah. Because of the other side of the of the uh, of Forcing a person to be this or to be that. Now it's becoming the other way. Mm-hmm. Now if you say, uh, "Hey, I'm straight and I like women," and and I wait a minute, you're you're, you're a beast. What's going on with you? That mm. kind of that kind of punishment mm. is cultural. But we're living in cultural based on social constructivism. That's what they're teaching in school. Social, not they don't teach you social. Yeah. But they're saying social constructivism is basically biology. Don't worry. Don't worry about it. There's no biology. And then they do postmodernism, which is everything is relative. There's no moral compass. There's just yes. So you want to be like there's no absolute truth. Really? You sure about that? (laughs) And I'll tell you something before Mm -hmm. we end. Um, Mm -hmm. Aristotle. Aristotle mentioned that he said, "Okay, the hedonic life is not enough. The Mm -hmm. life of pleasure for pleasure is not enough. So we have to have something more." And he called it eudaimonia. Uh, and as you as you know that I talked about earlier. So good. Uh, and it's a Greek word, eudaimonia. You is good, daimonia is the spirit, not demon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So then he said, we have to have, find pleasure and meaning, service, and uh, uh, meaning, service, and purpose. I have to have pleasure. 
So lately, the last uh, I mentioned, as you know, in the in the other web webinar that you were in, the the studies that have been done, several studies that look at something very very specific in the immune system cells. It's called CTRA, conserved transcriptional response to adversity. It's a beautiful name, and those those cells, about 21 to 40 cells, will respond to adversity with inflammation, antibodies, or antiviral. People, they divided people, okay, this is a psychologically you're hedonic, psychologically you're eudaimonic, by the way they, they describe themselves. The people who were eudaimonic, people who found service and all those things uh, meaningful, had better CTRA, which means they have a better response to adversity. So mm -hmm. there's biology, no question that there's biology. Whether gender or not, there's biology. You can't, you can't refute and say, well, uh, everything's socially constructed or culturally constructed. You know I'm a great believer in culture, but I don't I don't take science out of the way there. Mm -hmm. So anyway, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yes. So, all right. So just in closing thoughts, what is your advice to us to make sense of this all? And, and also, if we want to be an outlier, if we don't want to be the norm, like let's go back to aging quickly. If we don't want to just, you know, get more decrepit as we age, but then we, we want to believe that, but then the culture is not reinforcing that. So everything we're seeing, advertisements, TV, everyone else talking, is to the contrary. So how do we maintain our agency? First, you have to read my two books. Yes. That's what it's all about. Okay. But second, you have to deal with the archetypal wounds that are stopping you from individuating. And we mentioned three. Mm -hmm. Three. And then the most important, you have to have a subculture of wellness that supports your outlierness your outlier consciousness that, that you say, I want to live agelessly. Oh, wonderful. Or you uh, look, this is a, a Hollister. The, the people who are in their under 20 wear them. You're sure. And, yeah. uh, and people mm -hmm. say, um, Oh, so you want to look like a teenager? No, I mm -hmm. want a teenager to look like me. See, <laughs> you need a subculture that supports, Oh, what a beautiful yeah. shirt. True. I was talking to a CEO in, in Brazil mm -hmm. and he was wearing uh, the same kind. And he mm -hmm. said, I'm so glad that you you're wearing that because people are making fun of me because I'm too old to wear a Hollister. Wow. So you have to find a subculture of wellness that supports your new way of looking at the world. So and back again to our environment. Our environment. Mm -hmm. So you create mm -hmm. an environment that's supportive of wellness, yes. not an environment okay. supportive of restrictions. Perfect. Dr. Martinez, uh, anything you want to point people to? Any projects, websites, your webinars? Please mention your books. Where can people find more about you and learn more and get deeper into everything we've talked about today? Yes, because I've written a lot to to make it easy for people to, uh, and of course, it'll make money. There's nothing wrong with making money, by the way. You don't want to say, oh, I'm just, it's okay. It's wonderful to make money. Um, I'm glad you the, said that. There's no the shame in, code, in wanting no, to make no, money. No, of course. The Mind Body no Code shame. and the Mind Body Self, Amazon, anywhere. And then I'm doing, uh, you can go to um, my uh, YouTube channel. I have over 540,000 people that have been there and I have, about 300 free videos on all kinds of subjects. And the name of the channel? It's Dr. Mario Martinez. Real simple, Dr. Mario Martinez. Then my website, biocognitive.com. And uh, and then I'm doing a lot on TikTok now. I, I thought TikTok was just uh, shaking your body and all, but there are people are really, I did one on ending a relationship wow. and how to, how to break away from the cycles of life. In three days, I've had over 15,000 people already. Wow. So it's actually, yeah. there's a hunger, there's a substance that people need. Yeah. So all those things, and TikTok, I'm, 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 uh, the hashtag is uh, how shrink. 
Excellent. 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 And you do webinars. I mean, there's just so much. If they go on, and this will be in the show notes, everybody, but there's just so many avenues is what he's getting at that you can find more about him. Some are free and some are not, but there's no excuse. There's a lot of information there and all based on good science. Absolutely. A track record. So I want to congratulate you for the work you do. Oh, thank you. And uh, it's very nice. And thank you for having me. Thank you. Well, I do have you to thank for a lot of my mindset for sure. And I obviously have more studying to do. Um, but I just, I'm just so grateful for your work in the world and just uh, keep going. <laughs> thank you. All right. Thanks for joining us today, everybody. And make sure you check out those show notes for more details on how you can find out more about Dr. Mario Martinez. Would you like to support my mission to help empower people all over the world to be all of who they truly are? If so, please subscribe to the show, leave a review on iTunes, and share it with a friend. And if you're looking to take immediate action to align your energy and optimize your health, visit amyfournier.com. Thanks for listening to Awakening Aphrodite. Let's awaken her together in you. I'm your hostess, Amy Fournier, and I already can't wait to be with you again and for you to hear what I have planned for the next show. Thanks for listening to Awakening Aphrodite with Amy Fournier. To learn more about Amy, check out her website, amyfournier.com. That's A-M-Y-F-O-U-R-N-I-E-R.com. You can also check out Amy's live and on-demand virtual fitness and yoga classes and sign up for her newsletter to receive a free mini ebook of three of her top tips for making holistic health a lifestyle. Again, that's amyfournier.com and get your ebook sent to your email immediately. Connect with Amy on the daily on Instagram at FitAmyTV, F-I-T-A-M-Y-T-V, and watch many of the podcast episodes and subtopic clips on her YouTube channel, which is also FitAmyTV. Enjoy, and we'll see you next time on Awakening Aphrodite.